Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we can all make a difference right now. Today, we celebrate International Women's Day with a woman who has been breaking barriers and leading in California for decades, former California State Controller and current Vice Chair of the California Democratic Party, Betty Yee. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Happy International Women's Day, the start of uh, Women's History Month, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's (laughs) good to have a day. Right? Ah, It's the least. It's the least (laughs) that the patriarchy could do is give you a whole day to yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's a start. (laughs) (laughs) We have a long way to go. And and we talk about it in our interview with Betty Yee, and she uh, talks about the the scope of International Women's Day and how we can be really thoughtful about women in all parts of the world and the struggles that they face today, uh, not just here. And um, and so that was really cool. I'm looking forward to everyone hearing her interview and just hearing from her because she's amazing. Absolutely. I appreciate it as an, a chance for reflection on how far we've come and also where we're going. And we all, we have a new generation of people who are also pushing back on gender constructs completely, which is also amazing and I think is part of the idea of International Women's Day. It's kind of pushing those boundaries, too. Absolutely. So we're going to hear from her, but first uh, we want to talk a little bit about what's happened this week. And... Um, CPAC overall was pretty sparsely attended, uh, kind of uh, a a fraction of the crowd that it usually gathers. And uh, Trump's speech, although he said it was standing room only and packed, you can look on the internet. There's lots of videos of of him, uh, of his speech and the crowd being, you know, about three quarters full, like lots of empty seats in the house for his speech. It's been covered a lot, but one thing that people didn't talk about was he was going through a particularly fascist and hateful uh, rant, but hitting all of his usual points and, um, you know, Democrats this and that. And, and the crowd was, you know, a kind of tepid response to everything until he brought up the rhino Republicans. And that's mm-hmm. when the crowd really got loud. Uh, mm-hmm. At this idea that uh, the MAGA Republicans needed to come up to the forefront and take over, and all these other, uh, you know, Republicans in name only needed to uh, get out, uh, and um, no one's been talking about that. But that that w- you know was striking to me because it was like we're watching the Republican Party just eat itself alive in real time. Yeah, that's that is absolutely what's happening. And we are going to get a front row seat of that in the presidential nomination fight that we're about to see next year. It And it absolutely is our opportunity to continue to surface that division and to continue to push on that division in order to build the kind of robust anti-MAGA majority that we know is possible. So it's it seems really helpful to us. I don't know why he's doing that, but um, but I, I, I applaud it in many ways because it just, 
the more that they are tearing each other down, the more that it gives us a chance to actually make a real contrast. So, and one of the things that I was going to talk to you, share with you, I don't know if you saw, but there were a bunch of groups that came together around the, some of the New York Republicans who were elected in 2020 in seats that were won by Biden that were pushing those Republicans to actually have to answer to some of these questions on their MAGA extremism. Mm -hmm. The one that uh, they had and then they got a lot of coverage yesterday for it was pushing one, I think it was in New York 17, the question of eliminating Social Security and Medicare and actually forced him to answer whether he would put him on the record, whether he would want to eliminate it. So that's fantastic. You know, they're finding ways to leverage against these MAGA Republicans to make it clear who they really are and to put them on record as, you know, in this case, this guy's saying, I don't want to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. So that is now, he's becoming a rhino. You know, he's becoming right. someone who's going to be wedged again by the MAGA faction. So I thought that was really interesting. And if folks haven't seen that Indivisible, our friends at Indivisible have done this really, launched a really cool campaign uh, targeting the 18 Republicans who are sitting currently in House districts that Biden won. And um, they're going to be doing a lot of actions against them. They're going to be doing just a lot of cool campaigning um, around those particular Republicans, which is the kind of thing that we need, right? Yeah. Um, the kind of thing that we need like to be happening year round so that we don't get into that situation again where we're going to be, you know, we lose by five seats. We lose by a combination of 5,000 votes the House of Representatives. Absolutely. It's so important, so strong. Uh, we need to be continually on the offense. We need to be defining the narrative. Uh, we can't fall into this pattern that we've been in where uh, Trump says crazy things and then you know we're just like responding to them or we're back on our heels. Uh, we need to be defining the narrative and, and holding uh, these Republicans to account. And uh, but, yeah, it's man, it's crazy. I mean, he threw Carl Rove under the bus specifically. And then I saw him on on Fox, like even Carl Rove was afraid to defend himself, you know, against the MAGA faction. He was like, oh, well, I got name checked, but I really liked the speech otherwise, you know, <laughs> it was like just so they're feckless. And, um, you know, yeah. it's. It's crazy, but uh, also It'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. Well, we're not. You know, I mean, if you watch the news, you're not going to have a choice. That's what they're going to cover. Uh, yeah. And uh, and so it's important for us to highlight the other things going on in the world. Um, yeah. <laughs> because uh, the media hasn't learned uh, either. Uh, the Republican Party hasn't learned. Uh, Trump hasn't learned, and the media hasn't learned. So we're going to see a lot of the same. But. Uh, Speaking of Trump, last thing I want to say is that uh, there's a lot of um, speculation that indictment may be coming soon. Uh, he said in his speech that he would not suspend his campaign if he's indicted. Interesting. You know, why, mm -hmm. why let a little criminal indictment stymie your run for president? You know, good for him. I mean, that's kind of his M.O. He's been saying that from the beginning, right? Yeah. I could shoot a guy on Fifth Avenue and I can still win the election. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah. 
so there's some, and we'll talk about this in in the uh, this week's to do list. But there's some indictment rallies that are being planned for when that happens. It feels people seem to think it's going to happen soon. Like you said earlier, I kind of believe it when I see it. But it is important that we prepare for that moment and then we make our voices heard. Love it. You know, I want to bring up something too. That was in the news this week, um, and it's a hard topic, but and you might have seen there was a story in the New York Times this week around Im- immigration policy and the Biden administration kind of trial ballooning this idea of reviving the practice of detaining migrant families, which is the same policy that had it had actually shut down. So this was a story in the New York Times yesterday, and you know, I think I just want to bring it up to say a couple of things. Like, hopefully, there's some kind of misunderstanding, and this isn't actually a trial balloon because there's feels like there should really be no room for confusion on this. There should be right. no reason to actually um, go against the values that we we all hold dear around justice, human rights. You know, it's part of the multiracial democracy. And, you know, sometimes when campaign season is starting to creep up, um, people think that we have to do things that are anti-immigrant because that's going to get votes or that's going to put us in the right kind of position. And I th- I just want to say that we have seen from a lot of the research work we have done that it is completely possible to win voters who we need to win to be with us by actually making a full-throated defense of immigrants as human beings by telling the story of what it means to actually move here for a better life and connecting those values to everyone in America. So I just wanted to bring it up because it is a news item that people might be seeing. And I think it's important for us to remember that we can we can actually tell a positive story about immigration and we don't have to feel like it's something we need to triangulate on to yeah. win. Yeah, thank you for highlighting that. Um, it is uh, uh, that would be so egregious and, and terrible. I hope they reverse course on that. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, the research also shows that um, when you don't detain asylum seekers and families and uh, let them in the community, they do show up for their hearings to seek asylum. That's it's not like they're they're lost forever, you know. Um, it, it just there's it's not necessary and it's inhumane and. Um, uh, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, God, I hate, I hate the political season when, when like the whole tough on immigration thing comes on. Like we need to make, mm-hmm. you know, uh, compassionate immigration reform, the, the narrative that people are running on for sure. Yeah. Thanks. I agree. Um, all right. So, uh, I, let's talk about our to-do list. I mentioned the, the rallies, um, uh, we're going to put a link uh, to some mobilize events for people to find in wherever you are. There's a there's a bunch all over the country, but basically they're prepping for um, impending indictment. Uh, the rallies will be held 5 p.m. local time on the day the indictment process is announced, or if it's if the announcement's made after five, it'll be the following day at noon local time. You'll see all the information on the mobilize link, but just sign up to get updates. It's really important that we make our voices heard, that it, when that indictment comes down, that we want justice to be served. Uh, no one is above the law and um, and no exceptions for former, former presidents who uh, say that they're now running for office, running for 
pre- former presidents who say they're now running for president again <laughs> after being impeached twice and now uh, most certainly indicted. Yeah, and I wanted to bring up just so folks know the people have been saying the f word right fascism the new f word is fascism and there's questions about should we say that word should we actually say fascism when it it is fascism Mm -hmm. um and there's been new research that the research collaborative has been doing our our colleague anat shanker part of that and they've been finding that voters are responding a little bit more than even several months ago to the idea of calling it a fascist faction actually using the f word So when people are out there doing um, these actions, you know, we can talk about the language of criminal conspiracy is important. Just continuing to elevate this was a criminal conspiracy. You know, this was not a one off thing. And then we can talk about that. All what all of this is, is the MAGA Republicans who wanted to cover up these crimes, the fascist faction that conspired to overthrow the election. I'm so glad to hear that the research is uh, affirming that we can say what is actually happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, my my own Republican brother actually listened to one of these episodes, one episode. Actually, I think it was an interview I did on another podcast. And he mm-hmm. said, you, you were really good. You were really good, Steve, except uh, you used the F word. <laughs> and he actually said that. And I, That's and funny. I was like, uh, yeah, sometimes I fucking swear. You know, he's like, no, no, fascism. You use the word fascism. I said, that's because fascism is a real thing. Oh, there, you said it again. I'm like, dude, <laughs> look it up and tell me that's not what's happening right now. Look at the fundamental tenets of fascism and the definition of what it is. Look at its uh, ugly emergence in our history and tell me that's not what ha- is happening right now. Um, yeah. So I'm glad that the focus grouping <laughs> and the deep canvassing and all of the uh, those conversations are, are are allowing us to say what is really happening. Yeah, that's encouraging. Yeah, that is. I agree. That's a reason for hope right there. <laughs> what did uh, Biden said? It was like sort of fascism or what did he call it? You know, like half fascism or. I mean, he used the word, yeah, but you know, he qualified it in some way. Qualified. I, I think it is still important, though, as as we're talking about effective messaging. Semi-fascism. Semi-fascism. That's what it was. <laughs> Semi-fascism. Just a a smattering, a smattering of fascism. <laughs> um, but I do think it's it's really important as we talk about effective messaging to still um, call out the MAGA Republicans mm-hmm. and not Republicans writ large. You know, mm-hmm. um, absolutely. Uh, I, I think of uh, Deval Patrick's interview uh, and the poignant words that he said at the end of his interview with me, where he said, um, "It's great that so many people uh, have uh, are are now woke, but we still need to leave room for those that are still waking up." And um, mm, you know, we, I like that. Yeah, I did too. So um, it's important uh, to make that distinction and give people space um, to. Come to their frickin' senses. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> then uh, the other thing in our to-do list is um, uh, our friends at Vote Forward have just dropped a whole bunch of letters for the Wisconsin Supreme Court election. You've heard us talk about letter writing on this show a lot because it's really effective and it's really fun and easy thing for you all to do. So we will have the link on that too. You can also go to Vote F. 
wd.org and you'll find it there but we'll have the link uh, on our show notes uh, get some letters write some letters for this pivotal Wisconsin Supreme Court election S- literally uh, the future of our democracy could be on the line with this one you know Supreme Court election so yeah no big deal super important yeah super <laughs> important very timely it's coming up in just about a month so now is the time to get those letters out yeah. All right. Um, what has given you hope this week, Jennifer? Well, uh, many things. But one thing I was going to bring up is, as you know, we've talked about, I think, a little bit, the the effort that the Biden administration and Democrats have been making to lower people's costs, to make life a little bit easier, create a little bit more breathing room in, in people's lives. And that's what we do when we're in power. We we use the government to pass policies to make things better. And it may seem like a small thing, but this idea of junk fees that we've talked about where there's these hidden fees and when people are, you know, working people and not, an, not a lot of um, – what are they? What does it not say? More month than check. <laughs> um, it's anything to reduce the cost is really helpful. And so a thing that came out this week that I thought was hopeful um, had to do with uh, several airlines. Um, the government has gotten three airlines to commit in writing to eliminate family seating fees, which apparently they were charging extra to be able to sit with your family. And I think it's just a very relatable thing. Like everyone's flown, everyone's flown who has kids with their kids. And it's a little bit yep. stressful to feel like you can't sit with your kids when you're trying to book your tickets and there's no seats together. So um, this is just an interesting thing, I think, and and they're starting to urge more um, airlines to do that, um, guaranteeing that people, uh, parents can sit next to children age 13 and younger without being charged additional fees if they're available booking. And so I think that's kind of hopeful. I think it's just part of the story of government working for us and making our lives a little bit better, taking taking a little bit of the the burden off of people that corporations have put on us by uh, gouging us, you know, every chance they can get. Yeah. Talk about junk fees, like an extra fee so that you can sit with your kid. Like that's right. so egregious. <laughs> so um yeah. So egregious. And, you can't and, treat. What did they say? You can't. Airlines can't treat your child like a piece of baggage. <laughs> baggage fees are bad enough. <laughs> yeah, a kid fee. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a lot to yeah. say about that, but you know, we we were talking a little bit before we, we were recording that sometimes these little things don't feel like big deals, but this is how we move. Like you know, um, it, our government really isn't set up to like pass like the one change everything bill. Right yeah. or, or those policies, um, and uh, and so every chance we have to, like you said, make people's lives better, that's what we try to do. I say yep. we, I mean Democrats, because Republicans Democrats. don't seem to do the same thing. And I'm not mm. saying MAGA Republicans now. I'm just saying Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, What's giving you hope this week? Well, there's been a lot of talk. Uh, about this story, and um, I think it's really cool. There was a huge uh, study, a trial about the four-day working week that happened in Mm. the UK, and the results were really cool. They found that it reduced stress and illness among employees and increased the profit for the companies. 
Um, a trial of a four-day working week in the UK, the largest of its kind in the world, has shown incredible results with reduced stress and illness among many of its benefits. The trial involved 61 companies across a range of sectors in the UK, with 2,900 staff taking part. The companies were required to reduce working hours for all employees by 20%, all without reducing r- wages. They found that the health benefits were significant. uh, They saw a decrease in anxiety, difficult sleeping, and uh, burnout among the participating staff. 39% of employees reported being less stressed. And there was also a significant decrease in the number of sick days during the trial, which dropped by around two-thirds. The report also noted that a 57% decrease in the number of staff leaving participating companies compared to the same period the previous year, despite Mm -hmm. the great resignation period. I mean, Mm. why would you leave a job where you're getting paid the same year and you have a four-day work week uh, and you have less stress? So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and and the results were so great. Ninety-one percent of the companies that participated in this plan to continue the four-day work week as policy. Fifty-six mm. of the sixty-one companies, eighteen of them have already made it a permanent policy change. Uh, the study found that companies increased their revenues by thirty-five percent during the trial compared to the same period in twenty twenty-one. So. Mm. That's just like really compelling. And, you know, we've been it really is. Yeah, we've been hearing about like the, the four day work week, you know, for a long time. And there's been some smaller trials about it. And um, this is the largest by far and the most comprehensive. And the results were stunning, you know. So it's, it's something that we ought to really look at. Companies certainly should look at it. Um, if you can have a 35% increase in your mm. profit, and uh, you're paying the same to employees and your employees are healthier and staying on the job and reporting less sick days, that's pretty compelling. Yeah, it really is. And it makes, it does make sense, you know, and it, it seems so far-fetched because it's not something we're doing on any kind of scale, but doesn't it make you wonder if back in the day people thought taking a two-day weekend was a stretch, you know? I mean, people... We didn't have that. We didn't have that rule in place. And now it just seems totally common sense. And thank you, very unions. Basic. Yes. It's thank unions you, that unions. fought for the five day work week. I know. I know. But, you know, there wasn't that protection before. And yet now, those of us who've been able to benefit from that doesn't seem like a big deal. So I think this is in the same category. It, it feels like it's a big deal, but in the grand scheme of things, it probably isn't. And this study really shows it's probably worth taking on much more scale. Yeah. I'll tell you, as someone who is uh, now running for assembly and working a full-time job and recording and producing a podcast, the idea of a four-day work week sounds really, really good. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Uh, yeah. All cool. right. Well, all right. Um, enough from us. I'm excited, as I said, for everyone to hear from uh, an amazing, amazing uh, politician and leader here in California who uh, will certainly implement a four day work week. No, I don't know. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't talk to her about that. But um, I'm excited for everyone to hear from Betty Yee. 
Eddie Yee served as California State Controller from 2015 to 2023. She previously served as a member of the California Board of Equalization from 2004 to 2015. She is vice chair of the California Democratic Party. She's a woman who is a great leader in California, and we are so grateful to hear from her on International Women's Day. Betty, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. So we know you were born into a large immigrant family and grew up in San Francisco. Can you talk and tell us more about how you grew up and what led you to public service? Sure. Uh, well, let me just back up. Maybe I'll answer that backwards. And that is uh, public service was really not a dream of mine uh, growing up. I've, um, I'm the second oldest of six children and big family, uh, not a lot of money or resources growing up. But as I like to say now, reflecting back, we were rich in values. And hmm. you know, growing up in, that, in an immigrant family, uh, my father came to the United States at the young age of 14 to uh, make a life for himself and for his future bride. He and my mother were in a prearranged marriage. And mm -hmm. uh, when he came to the United States, he came to San Francisco and apprenticed in the laundry business. And in fact, I just recently found his labor union card when he was <laughs> a member of the laundry workers union in San Francisco. And that uh, really created a path for him to citizenship because uh, when he learned the business, it was also a time when he was able to enlist in the United States Army and to uh, become a naturalized citizen by serving our country in the uh, during World War II. So that was his path. And then eventually opened up his own laundry and dry cleaning business. But, you know, growing up as a child, we didn't have a lot. Uh, but we also knew that there were tremendous opportunities. And I think my father's model of service really was um, what inspired all of us as uh, their children to begin to look at how we can also give back for the tremendous opportunities that we've had here in the United States. Mm -hmm. what, what was the first thing that you volunteered for that you got that got you involved? You... Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> I volunteered for uh, it was a um, uh, it was a, a food, a food, uh, food drive. Um, so it was actually to to help deliver meals. Um, and this was as a young child. Um, there was uh, food left over uh, on occasion in the cafeteria. And I remember um, accompanying some of the cafeteria workers in terms of just donating some of that food that was left over. I got I got voluntold to do stuff like that as a kid. And I'm so grateful for those experiences where I had the you know, the moms in the community who just dragged us out to, to be of service. Right. And yes. um, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, the job of a controller. For, for folks at home that didn't learn about this in school, mostly because schools don't teach civics uh, really anymore, see our last episode on civics. But anyway, uh, <laughs> could you just explain the job of the California controller? Sure. Uh, and I will say it's not an elected position in uh, some states, but in California, it is one of those statewide constitutional officers. And unlike the treasurer, uh, uh, who serves as the chief investment officer for the state, uh, the controller serves as the chief fiscal officer. So essentially, being uh, the one who oversees all of our state finances to be sure that we have enough cash to pay the bills. Uh, we also have uh, the independent audit authority of uh, different programs. Every payment that's made uh, by the state of California goes through an audit to be sure we have the authority to pay and the funds available to pay. And we also uh, are responsible for 
payroll for state employees and California state employees, California State University employees. So about 300,000 uh, state employees altogether, uh, their payroll. And uh, we have the huge um, responsibility of producing the financial reports for uh, the state of California, which, uh, as you can uh, see, is uh, uh, one of the biggest states in terms of revenue. Uh, but we do oversee uh, all of those finances and produce the annual comprehensive financial report that investors and others who are interested in the financial condition of California uh, really follow. Yeah, that makes sense. It's really where the rubber meets the road. On it is. It is. And I, will, and I will say that uh, during the pandemic, uh, because we do make so many payments, about uh, 49 million payments. And during the pandemic, that increased by about 25 percent mm. uh, because California did issue stimulus payments. We uh, became known as the fiscal first responder for California. So mm. uh, we didn't miss a beat. Tax refunds kept that. going out. We, nobody missed a paycheck. Uh, retirees got their paychecks. And so we uh, feel very proud of the work that we do. And uh, I would say we're kind of like the engine room of uh, uh, state government. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, I want to ask about that a little bit more, actually, because we know that in addition to keeping it all moving, you were really focused on the affordability crisis and specifically, yes. you know, policies that impact workers, affordable housing, health care, education. And I know that we've made some great strides with your leadership helping grow our economy to now the fourth largest in the world. But as you've noted, people are still in crisis and, and we yes. know the pandemic made it harder. So how are you reflecting on that and what are the areas that you think are really critical to focus on moving forward? You know, California is an interesting place because as our, our governor fondly likes to call California, we're a, a nation state. Um, mm. But I think one of the things that we don't look at as often um, is how we are a global economy. And the fact that we have um, just many of our um, you know, successful leaders here are uh, hail from other parts of the world and how we embrace diversity here in California, which I believe is one of our greatest strengths. Um, it is one of the things that has made California our innovative spirit, uh, the fact that we have such a diverse economy. And yet at the same time, we know that um, the inequality and just uh, what we're seeing in terms of uh, what the pandemic exposed uh, relative to the economy really um, causes con a lot of concern uh, that we had certainly those who are uh, upper income earners who rely on the stock market um, and investment related income did very, very well. And uh, those who uh, worked in the lower wage service sectors uh, obviously did not do so well uh, during the pandemic. And that's been the case for quite some time now. And uh, I think when I think about California being the fourth largest economy, I don't know how we sustain that, uh, frankly, without taking care of what I call the drags on the economy. So things like uh, the affordability of housing, the affordability of healthcare, uh, the fact that um, People need to be making a living wage to be able to be here in California. And then, of course, all of the investments that we make in education and other opportunities that uh, can uh, really increase uh, California's mobility as well. So uh, those are all in play, I think, as we think about future investments. And I hope the pandemic has really created some urgency with respect to being more intentional about investing in our uh, disproportionately affected communities, you know, our frontline communities that really have been uh, seeing the brunt of uh, just some of the policies that have either been uh, ignored or have uh, not been sustained over a long period of time. Yeah. Everywhere we look, we definitely see the housing crisis in, in full effect and um, on all different levels, uh, be it from, uh, you know, the 
you know, societal failing uh, that yeah. showcases on our streets every day when we see people, you know, living on the streets. And, uh, and to, you know, families like mine who wonder if their daughter will ever be able to afford their first house uh, in, in this market. So uh, a lot to address there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your work as vice chair of the California Democratic Party. Um, what do you see the role of the party in the next couple of years? And of course, I uh, currently uh, chair the organizing department too. So I feel yes. some, some. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm a stakeholder in this, but um, we definitely made, uh, have been making good strides to build our organizing power. But in the last election, we fell short in some really important key races. We did. Um, there are many reasons for that. But, uh, but how do we learn and move forward in an election cycle where, once again, California will have a pivotal role in winning back the House? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I look at, um, Steve, the uh, organizing definitely is so key to the work of the party. To me, it's the bread and butter work of the party, how we uh, really look to engage the 10 million plus Democrats in the state of California and be sure that they are fully participating in our um, elections, as well as uh, being informed about what the issues are. And so um, I am very pleased to be supporting, um, hopefully, the beginnings of a year-round organizing um, effort uh, so that we're not just uh, meeting voters uh, months ahead of an election, but really year-round as we uh, deal with some of the issues that we've uh, just uh, alluded to. Uh, but I think the role of the party uh, is uh, about a number of things. One, um, it's about accountability um, for uh, those uh, whom we elect, that uh, once uh, people are elected, that uh, we want to be sure that they uh, stay true to what we expect them to do with res uh, with regard to you know these issues that we hope can uh, improve for many Californians. Uh, there is also an aspect of how we continue to engage uh, many voters that we've not touched um, or even voters who are not uh, registered yet, right? And so uh, particularly in our immigrant communities where I, this is where I look at California's diversity as being a strength, but yet not really, um, you know, fully um, the, the full voice of, of the electorate is still not being expressed yet because right. we've not been able to you know, reach out to those communities that have probably the most at stake, uh, but don't really understand the connection between their full participation in our democracy and and uh, their the conditions of their lives. And so that is a huge part of, I think, our organizing effort is to uh, be able to be in those communities. And then I think the, the other thing I would say is uh, there is a role for the party to really help heal some of the... Um, the uh, political discord that is uh, in place today. Um, there is, I think, uh, and this is not to say we shy away from a fight. I am, we are in this for the fight, yeah. for the values that we hold dear. But at the same time, uh, when I look at, um, you know, just, uh, you know, just, just how um, particularly Republicans are uh, wanting to express, um, you know, the their views about the condition of this country. Um, it is with uh, lies. I don't think Democrats uh, lie. I do think that we spend a lot of time really understanding what people are experiencing in their daily lives and try to give voice to that, and certainly through our policies as well. Uh, but also as um, keeping keeping the uh, decorum, if you will, uh, that uh, you know our democracy really is a place where um, everyone is welcome, where everyone is. Uh, uh, hopefully going to be allow the opportunity to participate and where 
the democratic institutions are protected. Uh, and that's uh, everything from the very basic right to vote uh, to uh, upholding our, our halls of government, you know, at all levels. And so it's uh, it's an important role for the party to play. And uh, I will say that, you know, within the party, we have our party dynamics as well. And But it really begins really? with us. I hadn't, and I, no, I hadn't I noticed that. No, yeah. but, but I'm just happy that we, we've started that work ourselves, right? That we've taken that self-examination ourselves. And so your work with uh, organizing for uh, you know, year-round organizing the work that we're doing with respect to um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you know, to really model, I think, as the largest democratic party in the United States, uh, just what it means to to have uh, you know everyone feel welcome. Uh, you know, in this party that uh, really, uh, hopefully, will uh, give voice to what they are experiencing in their lives. Mm-hmm. I I love what you said about that engaging all of the 10 million Democrats who are part of this party in the state. And one of the things that I think we've struggled with is giving people an on-ramp so that they really know exactly how they can engage. And I'm wondering how you've worked on that. Are there innovations that you're thinking about for this next years ahead to to get more at that? How do people actually enter? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think uh, there are numbers of ways to, for people to, you know, um, enter, uh, you know, being involved and in, in, in participating. Uh, one is just um, really, and, and, and these should be things that the party look at uh, with respect to not being a burden on people, right? And so as I think about uh, how to engage, uh, I will say that the way that I like to engage at the very basic level is to invite people to just share their experiences. Uh, as, a, as a party that is diverse as the Democratic Party, as mm-hmm. in a state that's as diverse as California, uh, I don't presume to know uh, that uh, I understand the daily experiences of people deep in the Central Valley or in the North State or in the Inland Empire. And so I think we have to just give a space to uh, an invitation uh, to uh, hear uh, just what uh, these, these stories about uh, daily life um, uh, encompass, and then uh, also uh, being sure that we are making the connection uh, with respect to, at the very most local basic level, why their participation matters, whether it's about uh, being able to affect the quality of the, the schools for their children, whether it's about being able to elevate their working conditions, whether it's about being able to live in you know safe, affordable housing. I mean, this is the work that I think is uh, really um, important, but sometimes we take it up a notch too quickly and not related back to just, you know, how people are uh, really understanding these issues in their own lives. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, uh, I almost felt like I wanted to take some of that question, too, because we've been working really hard to develop yeah. those year, year-round programs. And, and I think a fundamental problem, uh, you articulated it so well, uh, Betty, with the what I like to call high potential voters, uh, what yeah. campaigns call low propensity voters, so they often get ignored. And that's a fundamental problem because the campaigns comes in and they feel like they don't have time to engage in these communities and, and they never uh, build those relationships with them. That's right. Yeah. So you, you can just imagine cycle after cycle after cycle, you know, what's happened to those communities. And, exactly. Yeah, and I think, I think our delegates – 
ideally, and I don't want to leave any of them out, but especially the ADEMs, these are the delegates uh, for our listeners who go through an election every two years and organize in their, commi- in their communities to get elected, uh, they should be the ones who are, who are taking leadership in, in their assembly districts as neighborhood Absolutely. captains and because um, right. they already have those relationships. So anyway, um, that's a, a later discussion for <laughs> – but I have lots of ideas. Um Today is, as we said, International Women's Day, and um, so nice that women get a day. I mean, I think that's the least we could do. Um, (laughs) It really uh, is. Right? Yeah. Um, But you've been a barrier breaker uh, as a woman in politics. Um, I wanted to know who inspires you today? Uh, You know, there are so many. Um, I'll I'll start with my political mentor, and then I will... um, conclude with uh, what does keep me inspired. And so, um, you know, I I think about political mentors and I will, I want to just give tribute to uh, the former Congresswoman from uh, Hawaii, uh, the late Patsy Mink. Um, You know, as women, particularly here, women in the United States, uh, I don't know that many of us would be enjoying the opportunities that we have today, but for Patsy's tenacious fight for Title IX. And at the time that she uh, served in Congress um, to uh, really shepherd the enactment of Title IX. No one looked like her. You know, she had to go and really lobby her colleagues, mostly white males, to put up a vote for Title IX. And I just still marvel, you know, at her tenacity in uh, being an architect of, of that very, very important act for women and girls. And um, a lot of that based on her own personal experience, just seeing you know, her own family members being passed up for, you know, opportunities. And so that just really informed her work on that, on that issue. Today, what keeps me inspired, obviously looking globally, and I am very happy we have an International Women's Day because for me, it takes me out of my uh, place here in California to think about what's happening around the world. And I oftentimes just sit in a quiet space on this day to just reflect, um, you know, what is um, someone in China, you know, what's a woman in China experiencing today? Uh, Of course, I'm thinking about the, the women and girls in Iran. Um, you know, I think about just so many places in the world where we still don't have uh, equality. And when I think about the work that I do with the United Nations and our sustainable development goals, you know, one of the things that really is highlighted is, is, is quality for women and girls, because uh, you can't have societies really prosper unless we uplift uh, women and girls. And then I think about the role that, um, you know, they, they continue to play in terms of all the issues that we deal with here in California, uh, whether it's uh, the environment, you know, how so many Many women are really uh, keepers and, te- and caretakers of the land in so many of their, uh, so many countries around the world. And so uh, it is um, a day of reflection for me, uh, but also a day of renewed activism in terms of just how much more work we have to do and knowing the work that needs to be done here. Uh, we know that everything that we do to improve the conditions for women here in California will have an impact across the world. And so just that connection with our sisters around the globe, I think, is very, very important. I agree. I love that. I love it as a a chance for reflection. And I'll take that in as well. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Betty, you know, we tend to end all of our interviews with a a very simple question. It helps keep our activism going and helps keep us getting on to the next thing, which is as you think about everything that's going on in the world and, and everything that you're focused on, what gives you hope? What is giving you hope right now? What gives me hope is the fact that, um, you know, we are here in California. Uh, We continue the fight. 
Uh, we don't let up. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of uh, certainly Democrats here in California. Uh, but also um, what always, always gives me hope is our young people, our, our, our young uh, activists. Um, you know, when I look at, um, uh, and I'm, I'm a caregiver for my 99-year-old mother. And so as I think mm -hmm. about her and certainly what she has uh, witnessed over almost a century, um, it's quite inspiring in terms of how she has been able to just put a perspective on everything that's happened in her life. I think for our young people, the fact that they are so active, they're not giving up, they want to be the architects of their own future, and we need to help them because basically we've kind of screwed it up for them. And so mm -hmm. um, I'm right there with them. Um, and to see how innovative they are, how uh, just uh, tenacious they are, how they are not willing to back off from a from a fight, uh, that's always inspiring to me. And, uh, you know, this is... Uh, it's, in so many ways, I, I think about our activism now as being a little bit of a race against time. Um, it's not to sound fatalistic, but it is the idea that uh, so many things turn on a dime. And, you know, some of that relates to, you know, the impacts of social media and, and uh, other ways that we're, you know, getting information or how we're influenced. But, you know, when we can be in, um, in solidarity together with our activism, I don't think there's anything that we can accomplish. And so that gives me a lot of hope. Boom. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I feel the same way. Uh, Betty, happy International Women's Day to you. Thank and you. thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Steve. And thank you both for your great, great work. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. And we want to hear from you. So send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or tweet to us at howwewinpod, at bluesboysteve, and at Jen Ancona. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and share our show with your friends and family. There's always more work to do, so we'll be back with more next Wednesday.